a lot of people invest in themes. The housing market's going to go up, and the theme that they're buying is the wave that they're trying to get in and ride on it. And the reason why people do that is because that works. You've seen over the last six years in storage, you just had to be in the game and you won. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it works until it doesn't. The idea is to not be dependent on the wave. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Self Storage Income Podcast. Today, we've got a sweet episode lined up for you guys. Um, obviously, the self storage industry has been kind of crazy the past few years, a couple years here, uh, for a number of different reasons. And uh, that's all about to change. That's right. And we are going to really try to give you guys the pulse on the market, what we're seeing, why we're seeing it, and how to take advantage of what may be the best next few years, actually, yeah. maybe three years in self-storage to buy assets that we've seen in over a decade. And I could not be more excited about it. If you're looking to develop or build a self-storage facility, whether that's a brand new facility or maybe you want to expand, Forge Building Company is going to be a phenomenal partner for you guys to check out and potentially partner with. They specialize in working with investors and developers, whether you're new or you're seasoned in the self-storage industry. A huge problem that people make is they think that self-storage is just that. It's just self-storage. It's not a big deal. However, there are ways to value engineer building self-storage that uh, a lot of engineers, a lot of structural, that just they don't quite understand. And if you're not using someone like Forge Building Company to come in and value engineer that storage facility for you, you're going to end up spending a ton more money than you need to be. You want to keep those costs low when you're developing. You want to control those costs. And that means you need to work with the experts. Forge Building Company is that expert. Link is in the show notes. Check them out. I'm excited about today's podcast for a few reasons. Mostly because we've been waiting for more of this environment for a long, long time. I know, man. It, uh, it seems like we were waiting and waiting. We didn't do any deals for you know a few years, and then we had some deals popping up, and then all the craziness happened and started to um, kind of compound and just got more and more crazy as time went on. Um, and now we're kind of on the other side of that, where yep. things are kind of calming down a little bit, cooling off a little bit. Um, so I'm really excited, man. I'm excited to see where all this opportunity is coming from and excited to dive into this episode today to kind of talk about all of that um, opportunity coming down the pipeline. So it's yeah, it's uh, really shaking things up. And um, we're, you know, a, a lot of people, especially listening to this podcast, uh, have probably only been in one market cycle. They've only been on the rise. So they've been feeling like they're missing out. They're missing opportunity. They're, they can't get a grip on pricing. They don't feel mm -hmm. like they have an edge because it was a buyer's market. And the buyer's market just got, or excuse me, the seller's market. It was the seller's market. And the seller's market just got stronger and stronger and stronger and more and more competitive. And, you know, that was frustrating for a lot of people, especially when you're trying to get into real estate and it's competitive at that level to where you feel like, how can I be offering a price that's higher than all these aggressive people? Mm -hmm. And you just can't seem to get an edge. And that that's really... Uh, really frustrating for someone starting out because you don't know quite the underwriting like the other guys do. You don't mm -hmm. know what exactly maybe dangers in the market are because you don't have experience. And so when you get to prices at that level, the implied and the real risk of making a wrong decision gets even higher. And, but more importantly, you're in conditions to where everybody has money all the smart people have money. All the people that are trying to buy deals have money. <laughs> and so then you have to ask yourself, why aren't they buying this deal? Yeah. Why well, don't they want it? And the other side of that too, I mean, you kind of touched on underwriting and things like that and how, how can you compete um, and not understanding some of the underwriting. And to be honest, I don't think a lot of these people that had money or access to capital understood the underwriting either, which is why we got into 
the the realms that we did with valuations and and cap rate compression um because i mean at, at some point it's like it's not about competition it's about making sound investment decisions yeah and there were so many of those things those deals that we saw where you know whether it was ones that came across our desk that we passed on or that we even looked at um or just the ones we saw other people doing uh the numbers just didn't make sense and people were executing on these things and it was just like how you know it, yeah the, the numbers don't align valuation doesn't align um and the opportunity just wasn't there for us and how we look at opportunity in, in growing our portfolio and, and how we invest. It just wasn't there at all. Obviously, one of the biggest pieces of the puzzle when investing in self-storage is funding and financing. Where are you getting your money from? Honestly, I hope you guys are getting it from Live Oak Bank. The people over there are absolutely incredible. They have an amazing team who knows and understands the underwriting of self-storage, the valuation of self-storage. They can work and coincide with you and your team in evaluating a deal and financing a deal, securing that financing and actually closing on an amazing deal and an amazing self-storage investment opportunity. Be sure to check them out again, Live Oak Bank. A lot of people invest in themes. So, oh, self-storage is good, so I just need to buy self-storage, right? The housing market's going to go up, and the theme that they're buying is the wave that they're trying to get in and ride on it. And the reason why people do that is because that works. Um, you've seen over the last six years, you know, in storage, you just had to be in the game and you won. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it works until it doesn't. Works until it doesn't, yeah. exactly. So cap rates compressing has nothing to do with you. It's just the demand for the product is increasing value. And so cap rates are going lower mm -hmm. because of product demand, not because of asset efficiency, not because fundamentals are growing, not because profits rising. And so a lot of people are making lots of money by not really adding value, just being there and existing. Um, and that works until it doesn't. And uh, then when you get in the opposite part of that cycle where cap rates are not compressing, in fact, in some cases they may be rising, then it's the opposite. If you're not actively changing value, if you're not actively increasing revenue, making the asset more efficient, you're losing value. And then everybody gets scared and then they rush away. The idea is to not be dependent on the wave. Mm -hmm. Like we, you know, often say on this podcast, I don't let markets make me right. Um, we want to make ourselves, And it's more like that's just a theme or not a theme. That's a motto, because at the end of the day, of course, we're investing in self-storage because we think the self-storage market is good. We think that it will continue to be good. We think that um, this is a incredible asset that will have high demand. If not, we wouldn't be in it. The idea is that we don't solely depend on the market uh, to make our investments. It's, we just, so many people get caught doing that. They do. And that's and a bad way. It, it is a bad way. And the other thing too that we've we've talked about a little bit before is, is just these market generalizations where, you know, you do have cap rate compression, these other things where people are just generalizing, you know, the value of their storage facility because this storage facility is valued at, at this or that. And so you had just kind of this overgeneralization of valuations. I don't mm -hmm. know if that's a good way to put that or not. Yeah. Um, and I think that's another just key point there in our investing strategy where we're not, you know, expecting markets to make us, but we're also not generalizing the market and saying, you know, overall storage looks like this or overall storage is operating this way or that yeah. way or performance is here or there or valuations are here or there. It's all dependent on that specific market that th those those microeconomic factors within that market with that, that are affecting that specific asset. Um, it's not this, you know, national or state level like high level look it's, that's just generalized and averaged. Um, I think that's another issue that, that I think a lot of people fall into um, when they look at opportunities. And, and that could be in self-storage or multifamily or yeah. any kind of business outside of, of real estate as well. Just that generalization of this is good and that's bad, I think is another pitfall that, uh, that people fall into. Well, it, it causes them to lose sight of danger 
because it's like I just got to get in. And then it causes them to lose sight of um, opportunity because I just got to get out. And uh, the reality is it's neither one of those, really, um, in most cases. Uh, now, there are times when it's just like the market's collapsing or, and that's, you know, this whole asset class or, you know, but that's that's rare. And in self-storage, that's simply not the case. And we look at it like a business. We're buying an operating functioning business. We look at fundamentals. We're looking at where we can drive values where the customers are, what the impact of price changes on customers are on that micro level. Right? Mm. Every unit represents a person. Uh, and our units are products and our tenants are customers. And how are we deploying that value to the market? How are, what is in the market that would allow uh, for rental rate increases or vacancy or higher occupancy like the focus on the drivers of the business and analyzing it in that way changes how you act within certain market cycles, meaning that it does it changes that we don't act within cycles. We buy when markets are down, we buy when they're sideways, we buy when they're up. Um, we saw so many deals that started falling out of contract a few months ago because interest rates were rising. And you're like, if a point in interest rates made it so you could no longer do the deal, you shouldn't have been doing the deal in the first place. Mm, and most people are just playing capital games. It's a spread of cost of capital. So we're deploying capital into an asset class, into a market we think is safe, and we're getting the spread on the cost of the capital to the revenue we can get. You hire a professional third-party manager. And it's very institutionalized practices, right? Well, you got to remember that that doesn't work for normal people because we don't have cost of capital at the levels that institutions do. So the spread doesn't work. And we have to change the way we look and do deals. So we teach the opposite of the institutional capital gains. Uh, so the institutional capital playbook, right, on the spread, growth markets, solid assets, low risk, the spread between the cost of debt, um, the earnings, inflation, rising rents, and that, that cap rate being solid and exiting at another. This, these are all very big plays that have to do with uh, a lot of things that the asset itself just needs to be secure and will go up. We don't even want to see it go up hugely, right? We want secure spreads at good normalized increases that are safe and steady and the spread between that cost of capital and then the appreciation of the revenue and asset right with the fixed cap rate, that is our gain. Um, I get it, it makes sense, it makes perfect sense. We understand why they do it because it makes so much money. 99% of people can't play that game. <laughs> so what we teach here is the opposite. You're buying a business and don't focus on the gains to be given simply by markets and the spread of the gains in the future versus your cost of capital going into it. The reason why is you're gonna compete with peop people that cost of capital are much lower. So you're gonna get thinner margins. We need to focus on the revenue and the expense load. We need to focus on assets that can be turned around. We wanna focus on assets that can be improved. And we want that value to come from a forced position that we're creating the value. And that's why we say things on here like cap rates don't matter um, because we don't, I, I don't know what the cap rate of any asset that I bought was. It didn't matter to me. That's not what we looked at. We didn't analyze it like that. Um, so we are simply looking at the revenue and through dynamic pricing, through um, controlling expenses, marketing, systematizing the business, um, increasing the curb appeal, access to uh, tenants and how can we make this a more uh, valuable perceived value and a, a better experience for those customers that will increase the rate at which we receive customers and we get higher better customers that will pay more that's the focus mm -hmm. and it is that focus that allows us to find good deals all the time regardless on the change in the cost of capital it, because that's not our focus, whether interest rates rise a point 
or lower a point, it doesn't change our buy box. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's still the same. It's still good, the same. Good deal's a good deal. And, good deal and again, those, deal. those things that you just covered are all those controllables. Those Again, those micro-level controllable aspects of a specific asset. It's not some macro-level, it's not you know event-based um, mm-hmm. investing yes. like you, you, you know, you're talking about relying on markets. None of that. It's all reliant upon you and your ability to execute those value add strategies for that, again, specific asset that's that's distressed, you know, operationally, physically, both, whatever that is. Um, and and again, that's that's our bread and butter, man. That's what we focus on. Um, and value add people are like, oh, yeah, that's value add. But maybe I'm not a value add investor. I'm like, well, then what kind of investor are you? Uh, once again, if you aren't competing on access and you're not competing on cost of capital, then what kind of investor are you? I'm a buy and hold. Okay, well, just because you're a buy and hold doesn't mean that you're not a value add, right? I worry about people that don't think that they're in the business of operating a business or that they're in the business of improving value. The reason being is if you're buying an asset that is super, of already a well-performing asset, your incurred risk is much higher of that asset going down. So if you're buying at the peaks of market, if you're buying on low cost of capital, highly occupied facility at the highest rates in the market, um, assuming that everything's going to go perfect and you're going to get a three, four percent increase, you know, over the years come you to me, I'm like, you've way leveraged risk onto you because the risk of it not being optimal, of mm-hmm. markets not doing what you want, performance not being as good, right, is that's going to be incurred. So you have no margin of safety here. And, uh, you know, you're probably buying a asset that the yield has really been taken out of it, right? It's been maximized by the former owner. Mm-hmm. So he's maximizing the yield and getting those returns out of it, giving it to you, and you're incurring a much higher risk basis than when he was in it. Dude, I love that because it's it's so often looked at the other way, right? Where it's like, oh, if it's a nice looking place, it's all this. If it looks great, it's it's going to be great, you know, air quotes. Yes. Um, Trophy assets. Yeah, whereas you think that would be less risky, but I love how you just broke that down. And it's like it's actually the total opposite where you have a lot more leeway and a lot more room, a lot more margin um, to capture that money on the table. Things don't have to go perfect to make it work. I mean, there's so much value in that. No matter what business or industry you're in, you're going to want a competitive advantage over your competition, right? You're going to want that ability to outperform and outmaneuver and outvalue that competition. Janice International provides you the tools to be able to do that, whether that's their R3 program to help increase the look and feel of your storage facility through new doors or siding or roofing or gating or whatever that is, or a technological or a technology solution like their Nokia solution that allows people to rent units, to access units, to do all of this without ever going in the office. Be sure to check out Janice International. Link is in the show notes. One of the best ways to optimize management and to increase the value of your self-storage facility is through property management. And that means you're going to need really good property management software. That's where Tenant Inc. comes in. These guys have a huge amount of tools at your fingertips that you guys can deploy and put into motion to extract the maximum amount of value and deploy the maximum amount of value at your storage facility. Be sure to check them out. They're all things property management. It's truly your one-stop shop. Check them out. Link is in the show notes. Yeah, it's it's a dangerous game to play when, you know, I, I don't want to gamble. Mm-hmm. I, I want to be in charge of my financial future. I want to create financial security. And, you know, when you look at like for our exam, investors, for example, you know, I was talking to one of our investors this morning. Uh, year one, he's received a, you know, something like a 24% return once you include depreciation, everything else, and we haven't even begun to maximize the asset. And you go, you know, a lot of that is just the benefit of real estate that he's receiving. Mm -hmm. 
And you're like, that's amazing. And then on top of that, you compile, then we're going to get our money back in two years, right? You're going to get a return on top of that. I mean, we were going through our, uh, after our refinance and everything, you're talking about like a three-year, 150 plus percent return. And when you compile the benefits of just generalized real estate into the opportunistic part of real estate, a lot of people don't understand the power of it. They don't. And like, and this was our investor and he was blown away by it. And it, it's the, that's how you scale. That's how you grow a really big business. That's how we've gotten to where we are is we wanted the foundational wealth building principles of real estate, but we wanted uh, to actually make a business out of it and grow it. So we mm -hmm. wanted to apply wealth building principles and by applying very simple ones, the leverage on an asset and on a model that is already teed up to create wealth income. It, it's huge. <laughs> it's really, Dude. really big. Yeah. No, it's so freaking awesome, man, because you, you, you guys just hit the nail on the head with that combination of, you know, business acquisition with real estate. And like you're just talking about, man, the returns and the potential returns and the ability to um, create value uh, and extract value is just unbelievable for for us and and the investors which is just so freaking cool it is and yeah. it's you know it's a interesting space it's an interesting space because self storage offers more levers to be pulled mm -hmm. to create value than a lot of assets do a lot of them just don't have the dynamic revenue uh flexibility like self-storage does. Mm -hmm. The speed at which we can change revenue, the ease, and you also don't have the inventory available for acquisitions of assets that can be improved. And self-storage offers those things at a scale that no other asset class does. Um, and that's so unique. Like it, it's... We, oh, for we're sure. very fortunate to be in the space we're in and the time we're in to have the skills we do, the understanding that we do to, to leverage this. I mean, it's been geez, almost 20 years building, but, um, you know, it's there. There's the wave is a big wave and it's a good wave. So if you can ride, not just sit on the wave, right, and ride it, but really maximize it, you can build uh, wealth that most people could only imagine. And that's, that's the goal. And that's what we're trying to do. And that's what we're trying to teach people to do here on the podcast. Now, a lot of people, when they're trying to break into the industry, though, and I get it, it's been hard. It's been a hard last few years. Why? Because everybody got what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Self-storage became mainstream. And it became, this is a consolidated asset class that's growing up. Everybody started piling in. Cap rates, which had never been on average below 6% um, prior to 2016, ever in the history of storage, dropped down to 4%. And we were seeing 4 and 3% pro formas like it was off the charts. And we, you know, the industry had never seen anything like that before. Um, debt quadrupled, you know, in storage. Um, it storage changed and it changed due to the demand uh, from investors. And that made it really hard for everybody that knew, got it, they're listening to this podcast, they're wanting to get in the game to try to wiggle in, to try to get a piece of the game. And it was it, discouraging. But as interest rates have changed, we're changing the landscape. So interest rates are rising. We're seeing more deals fall out of contract than we've ever seen. We're seeing markets just get shuffled around as equities fall. That's changing capital flows within the economy. We're seeing the change in uh, uh, real estate across the board. And that's starting to accelerate. Um, but that's also opening up opportunities. Opportunities. We're seeing opportunities that we really haven't seen. Like we're seeing opportunities from sellers that are willing to sell or finance. So people that can't get money say, I don't have money. Well, you can do seller financing. We've done that. Um, we're doing it right now. Uh, and so all of a sudden opportunities that may have been completely closed off for an investor, even with no money, are now opening up. Uh, 
and I'm really excited about it because all these things we were talking about here, uh, an individual can apply within this industry. They can actually, there's cracks that they can squeeze into now mm -hmm. uh, from the demand. You can look at markets where other people aren't looking. Pressure is starting to cool off and you're going, hey, we're, we're going into, you know, who knows how long, but I'd be willing to say probably a couple of year period where, you know, you can be a buyer and you can find good opportunities. You can negotiate, particularly if you're out of those first tier markets and fast growing second tier market um, areas, which is the majority of the United States, right? Because capital retreats um, to, it floods to safety as interest rates rise, our overall capital in the market's shrinking. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to, to try to squeeze the money down. There's too much money. It was causing inflation. They're trying to get rid of it. That money retreats out to first tier markets. It retreats to higher, better assets. A lot of the people that were just dabbling in the industry disappear. Um, and it turns into more of a seller market. Um, excuse me, a buyer's market. We're not there yet. It's still a seller's market, but it's it's changing. It's like we've lost the crazy. That that's gone. We're mm -hmm. not seeing the crazy anymore in the market. Um, and in the fourth, third tier markets, you're now having opportunities, mm -hmm. and you're not competing really as much as you were prior to it. And oh, man, sure. that's a welcome sign. It is, man. No, it's it's definitely a breath of fresh air because I mean. I know there were deals that we looked at that was like, you know, we're going to pass on that because, you know, we've got some other buyer coming in. And again, people that we didn't even want to compete with because, again, the risk was just way too great. Didn't make sense for us. Um, and we're not going to sit there and, and try to compete with something that's just not even not even going to make sense for us. Um, and it, I, I love that you brought up the, the concept of seller financing, because, as you said, as the, you know, money supply shrinks, um, financing is going to be a little bit more difficult, I would imagine. Um, I don't think there's going to be as much capital out there. And so these creative financing strategies like seller financing is going to be huge for a lot of people, especially starting out. Um, there's a lot of different ways to do that. So super key point there. Um, AJ, do you think as, as the effects of interest rate increases continue to kind of trickle down through the markets, especially the housing market specifically. Do you think we'll continue to see more and more correction within the self storage industry as far as yes. and how that's going to affect it? How do you see that kind of playing yeah. out? So I, I do. I think that, you know, we're we were at a place that in twenty twenty was in twenty twenty one, maybe twenty as well, but the years, the two years after COVID, we saw occupancies on average in the United States at 96%. Um, prior to that, the next highest average on record was like, I mean, it was like in a lot, outside the last five years, you're talking 86%. So um, when we look at interest rates, and how they're going to affect markets, it, it would be foolish to assume that we're gonna have occupancy levels at above 95% to above 93% because that's not historically ever been a thing. So I think that you're going to have a lot of assumptions that have been underwritten in, challenged. You're gonna have more vacancy that is going to cool down or rental rate increases that you can get. You're going to have more selective buyers. You're going to start to see a change in building. Um, you're going to start to see a market that has to get out of a COVID environment, which massively benefited storage and return to some remblance of a new norm. And we don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. And so... I don't think it's doom and gloom at all, but I think we will start to go back to a period of time where we see projects fail. And you got to understand that in basically every single normal environment, if you do a bad deal, it's going to fail. We've been in an environment for the last five years that you could do a bad deal and it was fine. <laughs> That's not supposed to happen. The market should actually penalize you if you do stupid things, right? Now, that's going to return. 
and people will get penalized for doing dumb deals, building deals they shouldn't have built. That causes defaults. It's not bad at all. In fact, it's bad when bad deals don't go under because it reinforces with both banks, builders, and everybody else that we can just throw anything up anywhere and we'll be successful. That kind of attitude leads to much bigger problems. Mm -hmm. You get way oversupplied markets. And there are some markets in the United States that are oversupplied. They're going to have to struggle through, right? And once again, I'm not talking about doom and gloom. I'm talking to a normal functioning market, which the self-storage market has not been for three years. That's just not happened. It's really hard to find any marketplace, any market period in the United States, stock market, anything that has been normal at all for the last past three years. And so the adjustment that's going to take place in the world, the world economy, um, it's natural. That's okay. It's good. Um, and during these adjustments, a lot of people say, well, I'm going to wait until it gets better, or I'm going to wait until I get an amazing deal. Um, that may never come. And you normally, when they say that they don't even know what they're looking for. So they don't even know what constitutes an amazing deal. Cause we find amazing deals all the time. I don't care what the markets are doing. Um, and so you this idea of timing these markets, it's, impossible um, and it's foolish you need to be buying deals that can survive different market sets and you need to understand and analyze markets to where you know if there is a underlying lack of demand you know if there is a supply issue that's going to hurt you that you just can be aware and avoid doing bad deals and making stupid mistakes and that way you can move forward in confidence 24-7 and over, even if you run into slow periods of time, rough patches, the, the markets will move out of it, will get better, right? It's going to go around. It, it shouldn't matter. Um, but by the time markets get better, there's no good deals because mm -hmm. it, the prices adjust accordingly. So, yeah. you know, it's not like it, you can just catch that. And it's not like it's once the fear or the uncertainty is taken out of the market, the risk is taken out of the markets and price adjusts. So you're not mm -hmm. going to get the deal. Yeah. And that's like the counterintuitive, you know, human nature. It's like when I feel safe about investing, everything's high. So I don't invest. And when I'm pessimistic about investing, I don't invest because eh, there's so much danger. So what it turns into is they just never invest. Mm -hmm. No, exactly right. And that, that actually kind of tease up my question I had for you too was like, as these deals start coming back, what can people do to actually be able to set them up for success? Like what can they do now to be able to execute on those deals when they do come? Because like you're saying, you know, when those deals are quote unquote, you know, safe and everything's attractive, again, that, that price adjusts, it's more expensive, more competition, harder to get. But uh, as those valuations are down, and things are quote unquote less safe, however you want to look at that, um, the money supply is not there and people can't execute on that. So what would be your advice to, to people like starting out right now? What can they do? Yeah. So first of all, know your buy box and your buy box has nothing to do with price. It has nothing to do with money. Your buy box is what type of asset, what type of market, what do you want to buy? Why do you want to buy it? Do you want to buy a smaller facility that you can automate in a third tier market where there's no competition? Do you want to buy um, an asset that has great appreciation prospects in a growing market that is large enough to sustain a manager? Like, what is your strategy? What is your buy box in that asset? And how or do you want to go about that in buying it? Um, once you understand or you decide what your buy box is, right? then it is understanding how to execute strategy of those buy boxes. So then understanding what makes those strategies works, that allows you to identify the assets in that buy box that are not implementing those strategies to be successful. Then you now have your buy box, you now have your opportunities. Then it comes to valuation. You need to be able to evaluate to come up with a price that is worth it, right? Um, but that's 
after. That's, that's, that's after. First, buy box. You really got to nail that down. And execution and strategies. Um, and then you got to have the team to get those things done. Okay? So the team to get those things done will uh, evolve management. It will uh, evolve around capital, being able to buy and execute that. It will involve um, the deal execution, meaning accountants, brokers, right, banks, uh, just the actual logistics of, of closing deals, mm. getting it done. So your close, uh, uh, your, your onboarding of that asset, right? Um, and then you need your capital partners to fund it, to actually come up with the capital. So putting together your team, people say, well, I don't have a deal. How do I put the team together? No, you put the team together around your buy box and your strategy. Then you use that to go find the asset. Then from the asset you find, you try to negotiate on prices. Then you look and try to evaluate that asset within your buy box with your team that you have surrounding you to execute on that deal. Um, but you can't capitalize an opportunity on an opportunity unless you can clearly define it and unless you can clearly execute on it. So, so many people are waiting for an opportunity that they can't define and that they haven't prepared to execute even if the opportunity did come, and even if they could tell that it was an opportunity, somebody else is there to buy it that can actually execute on it because the seller doesn't care if you can't execute and you need time mm. or you got to figure it out. That's not his problem, it's yours. Yeah. So being prepared for opportunity is way more important than the opportunity itself. Because if you're not prepared, nine times out of 10, you'll never even see the opportunity when it comes. Hey, everybody. Connor and I work really hard to try to bring the best podcast in cell storage that we can. We ask a lot of guests, we do a lot of research, and a lot of work goes into it. If you could help us out by leaving a review, it's so easy. You just go down on whatever device, Spotify, Apple, whatever you're using, leave a great review. It really helps us out. Thanks, everybody. Uh, it reminds me of a quote that... Um somebody told me was uh, that luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Yes. And uh, that totally reminds me of that. And it's funny you're talking about this too. Um, I love that you said price um, is, is essentially not a factor, you know, in your buy box and, and figuring out, you know, what you want to buy and not buy. Um, and it reminded me of a conversation I just had with a guy the other day. Um, I'd seen this landscape company for sale recently. It was you know, a couple million, I think it was like 2.3 or something like that for sale. And um, I, I had the guy that I was talking to actually ran a landscape company and um, had just recently moved here, sold his company that he used to have, you know, back in his hometown uh, landscape company. Again, he moved here, he's got a few jobs. And I was like, hey, maybe he wants to like acquire an existing landscape company, kind of build it out. And um, I showed it to him. I was like, hey, I don't know if this is, you know, making money or not, but you know, here's the performance and this and that. First thing out of his face, man, wow, that's a lot of money. It's a big price, big price tag. And I was yeah. like, he doesn't even realize what he's looking at. Yeah. You know, doesn't and it's just, know. yeah. And it's so interesting how we can just get stuck on the price tag. Yes. And and what a pitfall that is for so many of us when we're looking at and, and evaluating something when it's not even, not even something that we should be evaluating. Yeah. The, pr the pr prices are relative. Yeah. It's a big price, a big price according to what? Right. <laughs> like, what does that even mean? Exactly. Right? Like, it's a big price. Well, I mean, if you could buy the, you know, Empire State Building for 50 million bucks, is that a big price? Seems pretty freaking cheap to me. Yeah. So, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, it, it's it, price is relative, but we are conditioned to look at prices because prices mm -hmm. are presented they are not something that is derived. That is a massive problem. A price is what you pay. Mm -hmm. That's value. it. It's not the value. Value is created. Value is put. If you're at the store, you are presented with uh, prices. You can determine if you want to pay that price or not, but you don't get to decide the price. And most of the time, the value that is being presented is non-negotiable, meaning... I don't have a choice to buy food. I have to buy food. If the price doubles, it's irrelevant. 
because mm -hmm. if I don't buy it, I die. Mm -hmm. So this conditioning of price and how we think about it is from a consumer point of view. And that's not actually how pricing works. It's not how the world works. And so price only comes after that buy box, that valuation, your strategy, what you're knowing, what you want to do with it. That's why two cap rates to me, I just don't care about it. It's mm -hmm. irrelevant to what I'm trying to do and figure out. Dude, and that's such uh, a good point there too, where like intrinsic value, I mean, value to you is different than value to somebody else. Yes. Again, it comes back to that buy box, that execution strategy, that the, your skill set, your model, everything that comes into play. Um, I, I know we've talked about a number of different examples of that here on the podcast, um, where you know value to somebody else may not be there, but value to us is absolutely there. Um, and we'll quote unquote overpay on something yeah. if the value to us exceeds that price and, and we're able to execute on it and, and, and in our model and, and again, in our buy box. Um, it's such a, such a phenomenal point. Yeah, if you get your money, if you can get money at half the cost of somebody else, your price range is totally different. And it's, um, you shouldn't look at markets and comparables and uh, you know, that's, that's a bad game to play when you look, when you're trying to correlate price with value, because your value is different and you just need to understand that. Then you go find your targets and you buy them and uh, you don't let, you know, you don't let the market tell you what that is. That's a, that's a quick way to really, really lose your shirt. Mm -hmm. uh, because the, for the most part, the market's value is whatever it can extract, um, and uh, you, you you don't want to get lost in that in that game. It it it's it's a bad place to be. So understanding your tar target is putting you in control. Understanding what your strategy is putting you in control. That leads you to your team of advisors that can have checks and balances. They can make sure what you're doing is okay. Make sure that your underwriting is clear, predicated on your strategy. Mm -hmm. making sure that you don't buy something and your underwriting's wrong because the strategy that you were going to deploy on that asset isn't the same as the from, from, former owner was. So now your expenses are higher and you're like, how did this happen? Well, you didn't know what your strategy was. Mm -hmm. So how could you underwrite it correctly, right? right. Um, so you want to be in the driver's seat. And the problem with most people is they can't find opportunity because they say, I may have my strategy, I may have my buy box, but I can't ever get a shot at anything because it all goes so fast, right? This is a great time, it's gonna slow down and now you can really apply it and it's a numbers game. So if people are like, wow, you guys get so many deals. Well, I don't, I, I, we probably look at 100 times the deals that any person does. Mm -hmm. Like it's shocking sure. how many deals we go through, underwrite and look at. So we better have a lot of deals because we have tons that aren't deals. Yeah, the ratio. So uh, the ratio is crazy, right? Yeah. Um, and that's us knowing very specifically what we want. And still we have to, because then it's a price. That price doesn't work for us, right? So now we have all our buy box, all our strategy deals, all the things we're underwriting. We come up with a price. This is the price that's being offered at. We can either meet it or not, or there's a delta between their price and what our price is and our value. And that tells us if we have a buy or not. That's it. That's what tells us if we have a buy. It's not that that price, right, is high or low. Um, we come up with our own. Mm -hmm. And from there, that makes us look and we can negotiate with the owners. We can be even be like, well, this is actually a steal for us. Or we can just say, hey, we're not even in the realm. Um, that gives us at a point where we walk away from deals when people are bidding them up. We know where our end mark is. Dude, it, it, and what you just said, it kind of reminds me of an episode we just had with uh, Tiffany Boss uh, previous, just to this episode here, I believe, um, where she was talking about, and again, price doesn't always matter to the sellers either. Yes, Which is such a huge, huge point that was brought up in that podcast where she ended up being able to secure a deal at a lower price. And again, we've done the same exact thing, literally just did it with a massive portfolio, which is amazing. Um, and 
just wanted to make the mention of that where and again she she utilized a lot of these same strategies we're talking about with the seller financing and Mm -hmm. being able to execute on these deals and opportunities when they come up knowing your buy box and um it's funny because she actually kind of ended up expanding or altering her buy box to be a little bit more specific in a certain area was able to execute on this deal um that this seller just ended up coming to her and saying hey i just want to work with you you know yeah this this and this even though she was offering a lesser price which again value what's the value to the the seller you know yes that's another huge part of the equation that i think so many people miss especially in regards to you know creative financing what are what are the seller's pain points and how can you solve those and what again what is the value to the seller you know you hit it right on the head because value lots of people think it's just the price to the seller probably 60 percent of our deals that we do we are not the highest bid Mm -hmm. we are not the highest offer um we try to work with the sellers to find out what they really want what's really valuable for them and then we can say listen we can't pay that price because our price is here but we can do these things and these are the things that are important to you so let's be flexible on these and uh, that's you know once again remembering that price isn't value on both sides that's how you put a deal together it's fundamentals of putting a deal together the big deal that you're talking about that we had the owner you know we were the least qualified we were the worst offer but yet we got him to sell to us and that was through understanding the seller that was through building a relationship with him which was found through a broker and um it's you know it you got to work within those realms and you got to work and we we may not have ever gotten it you never know so you gotta Mm -hmm. you gotta go after it right you gotta shoot you gotta start the negotiations you gotta talk um but uh there's there is middle ground and i think in the last three years the market has been conditioned to price meaning it was very much sellers really cared about price Mm. why because the market was giving them crazy prices (laughs) they could get whatever so (laughs) all of a sudden then the sellers were just like well i'm selling because i can get a crazy price so that's why i'm selling so we saw so many of those deals like so many deals came to market in the last two years it just was crazy because sellers knew i can get crazy prices so they were very much price driven right we're now moving into a different part of the cycle where that won't probably be the primary motive of course it's always a motive but we're gonna have lots of sellers that will be selling for different reasons and that's why they're selling and they're going to sell whether they can get the highest price or not and uh, that's where you can come in when you're not an institution you can be flexible a lot of people don't realize that flexibility in the real estate game is one of your biggest advantages Mm -hmm. and it's one that institutions and big boys do not have and you should use it to its fullest and you should be able to work and do things that they won't and work with sellers and do things that the big boys won't ever work or do with them and now all of a sudden you're you're getting away from the price discussion and that's your advantage in the market um and that's exciting and that's why we're saying the deals are coming right the market conditions are changing to make these things more apparent and i think honestly uh give more of an edge back to buyers that aren't institutionalized that aren't super well capitalized um, in a lot of markets and deal size, they are actually now more advantageous because those other buyers have gone away. And so now there's less competition. Um, we were talking with a bunch of people on a feasibility study we were doing for them this morning where you're like, we asked them, has anyone else even put an offer on this deal? It was in a third tier market. And they're like, as far as we know, no. And I was like, you may not have another person put an offer on it. That hasn't happened for years. And so they now can change their um, negotiation tactics, right? And how they're working with that seller. Uh, And uh, so that's great. That's really, really a a good thing and a way to go. Off-market deals are going to become easier too, Mm -hmm. finding off-market deals. 
because the advantage of simply just going to a broker because they're going to get me the highest price we don't feel like that's true necessarily. A lot of sellers may be going, I, I don't know that that really matters anymore. So I'm calling direct to owners, particularly in the spots that aren't hot spots, right? You're gonna see more yield from those activities. Uh, so yeah, I'm excited. The deals, they're here, they're coming. We're seeing more. I've told lots of people, but I think we'll buy more in the next two years than we did in the previous five. Yeah. Um, and we're on our way to that right now. <laughs> Well on so, the way, man. Know, we may do that yeah. in the next six months. <laughs> I'm just so. going to say, yeah, that's coming down the pipe pretty quick. Yep. So, no, I'm excited too, man. Excited for all the opportunity coming down the road and um, excited to just kind of be be a part of this whole thing, self-storage income, being able to help provide tools to all those, those people out there that are wanting to get into this asset class and this amazing industry. Um, do you want to talk about the uh, the self storage income event real quick in yeah. September? Kind of speaking of like building community. Yeah, and- we so we're we've launched like we already have um, we, we we have the, it's already set in stone the dates the hotel everything same place time we did it last year. It's in September. It's the nineteenth. Um, yeah, check on those dates real quick. Yeah, let me I want to make sure we get the these rights. uh, because I have to tell you, we are just opening up. um, And this, I mean, it will, it's going to sell out like incredibly fast. So Mm -hmm. we uh, are limiting actual people to attend to it. We don't want it to to be too big, much like we did last year, um, which was just phenomenal. And uh, um, we're still at the same resort on the lake. It's a smaller, more private event um, that consists of everything from facility walkthroughs to technology. The speaker lineup is incredible, and we have more stuff coming out on that. Uh, But those dates are... The 20th through 23rd of September. The 20th, 23rd through September. You can follow the link below. But... um, yeah, it, it's going to go fast. We're, we have a very limited amount of uh, attendees. So if you want to get out, you know, I, have we, I don't even know how much they've released it. And I know we've already filled up. I haven't mm-hmm. fully released it to the public haven't yet. haven't even marketed. No, like and, and I think we may have like 50% of it already full. Yeah, we've got some so registrations coming through already where, yeah, we haven't really done anything. I think it's gone out to certain email lists and things like that. But um yeah, it's, it's filling up quick. If you guys want to be a part of that and, and come and hang out with us, enjoy the fun, definitely check out the link in the show notes. Come and hang out with us. It's an amazing place. Coeur d'Alene, Idaho is just freaking beautiful. Um, I mean, that in itself is worth it. Yeah. But the value of the, this storage event is totally insane. So um, excited to go again this year, man. It's going to be fun. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to seeing all those people there, um, both old and new. So it's yeah. going to be epic, man. Yes, it will. Thanks, everybody.